Good evening. This is Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundant Success series. Our spotlight is on urban renewal. My guest is Margaret Stagmeyer. She has a great book called Blighted, a story of people, politics, and an American housing miracle. She likes to take aging properties, rental properties, and in this case, the aging apartment called Somerdale near Atlanta. It was one of the grittiest quarters, and uh, it was burnt out, mold-infested, had crime, etc. It's just um, really a, a project to behold, but she was able to turn this property around with the help of not only the residents, the local government, educational components, just really concerned citizens took a lot of work, but she was able to turn this around, and the educational, as well as health. We talk about these components and what leads to blight, and it's a result of the combination of interrelated socioeconomic conditions, including the city's urban planning decisions, the poverty of the local populace, the construction of freeways, railroad lines, and other entities that bypass and run through an area that depopulate it, and it becomes pretty run down. She has a lot to say about this and the talk of this great new book and her real estate approach to building communities. This awesome interview with Margaret Stegmeyer and I comes at you right now. I want to welcome you to the show, and I did read your book, Blighted, and the reason why I wanted to have you on today is because you see these buildings all over the place. Some buildings that are blighted are historical in value because of when they were built. First of all, tell the audience who you are, where you're from, and what it is you do. Well, I'm Margie Stegmeyer. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and I like to buy large blighted crumbling apartment communities with high crime near low-performing schools. And I renovate the properties, partner with the school, and use affordable, stable housing to improve schools and improve communities. Sounds great, and it's very much needed. Now, what got you to look in this direction? I was the Monopoly champ of my sixth grade class in public school outside of DeKalb, outside of Atlanta in DeKalb County. And I told my parents that night I was going to be a landlord. So I've known I've wanted to do this for since I was 11 years old. My father told me to go get my CPA in case, you know, this landlord thing didn't work out. So I went to Georgia State, passed the CPA exam, and went straight into real estate. And um, affordable housing is my favorite asset class. I've owned apartments, shopping centers, office buildings, but my heart's really in affordable housing and how you can use housing to really turn around neighborhoods. And that is the key point, turning around neighborhoods. There have been so many um, landlords who are now out-of-town landlords. They know nothing about the community. They don't really care anything about the communities. They just want to make money. And I wanted to start with your journey in doing this type of work. And it does take a village. It takes a lot of people to come on board. Before you get there, though, um, what was it like getting into your field in the beginning to do this type of work? What was it like? I would say it was a very slow marination. Um, I 
started my first company um, when I was 30 years old and was able to raise some money, a couple million dollars, and started buying Class C apartments. And from there, my journey just progressed. I had a wonderful property manager that was a reverend who basically told me one day, she goes, I would really like to start an after-school program at this high-crime, marginalized apartment community. And I was like, of course. And we just saw the value that after-school programs bring to apartments. When I was reading the applications for this particular property, my, my average tenant was a single parent making 8 to $10 an hour. So, and they had two to three kids. So that after-school program, you know, allowed the children something to do after school. The school benefited and my apartment community benefited. So I really saw by doing these community programs, you had a triple bottom line. It was an excellent, profitable business model. My properties always say 100% leased, and usually I collect rent. So, I mean, I'm a for-profit model, so I have to say from a business perspective, it's just smart business. The um, blighted buildings, many sit for decades upon decades, and you have a lot of issues, especially as the decades go by. Say a building is built in the 30s or 40s, and you've got um, building codes and all kinds of other things to deal with. And when they become blighted, of course, you're dealing with um, high crime activities, etc. It's not an overnight thing. It's a journey, as you say. And exactly. you have to get the right people on board to actually see um, value. So you're talking about the Atlanta and around that um, area um, of regentrification, et cetera. And I remember reading in the book you were saying that uh, because of the blighted areas, children were in low-performing schools. They were more susceptible to health care issues and, and even the parents and caregivers of these children. It, 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 it sounds like an awful lot. I wanted to know how you were able to, because you have to start from the ground up getting support for this type of thing. Um, it wasn't overnight. You mentioned a couple people um, in this interview. But really, you have to have the political. You have to have the um, local. You have, they both have to work together. How long did it take the police um, and other entities to come on board to actually get a blighted community? Um, because I know people can be paid off. People can be someone's relative. So, you know, I was reading some of the, the dynamics in that. It, it's, you've got to really have a strong core. So I think Blighted does a good job because literally I followed 15 people for three years and interviewed them along the way. So really Blighted's the story of the people that were involved in the Blighted apartment community who lives there. I mean, it just floored me when I really started talking with my tenants. I've never sat in a tenant living room before. But you'll read in the book about Mrs. Humphreys who has lived at the property for 22 years and she's now raising the fourth generation there. So you could see through her interviews and interviews with her daughter and her, her great-grandson how housing really affects intergenerational poverty. There was no hope for her kids. Those are the people that that keep us motivated. So when Ski, our police officer, I mean, he has a real passion for this, for this community work. Um, our, the foundations that help provide money to help us purchase it, you know, they have a real passion. What you have to do when you're creating your ecosystem, you have to ha you have to align people 
if you have the will and the passion to do this kind of work, um, and believe it or not, I don't find a shortage of people. We do not have a problem finding people willing to commit to this type of work because they have truly seen how it transforms lives and transforms schools and transforms communities. Um, Mrs. Humphrey, her great-grandsons are thriving. Um, They were totally traumatized. They were low readers, but now they're thriving. And, And we have been doing this long enough that people get excited about really being part of something that works that that's a great investment that helps people improve their lives. Um, the topic of uh, that you've just mentioned and the success stories, you get many people who leave areas, uh, in, 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 whether it's cities, whether it's parts of town, because of criminal activity. Um, mm-hmm. They just pretty much throw, throw up their hands and say, forget it, we're going to the suburbs or we're going farther out into the country or we're just going to pretend it doesn't exist Getting that under control is vital uh, because many times these drug lords, they or or people, they they are so interconnected and they're always recruiting new right. people. But right. how long did it take? Because I know you said you had another property that was not necessarily keeping up with the great uh, strides that you'd made. You went into um, Somerdale with a different mindset that you wanted this to be a longer-lasting, you know, uh, property success. What did you learn from that first property when you brought it up to code and then all of a sudden it just sort of, when they got a new landlord, it tanked? Right. So that was Madison Hills, 446 units. One thing you have to remember when you buy these large blighted apartment communities is they're cities. You know, that 446-unit property had two, three, and four-bedroom units. It had over a thousand bedrooms, so we had over two thousand people living at this property. Um, the the county, which was Cobb County, worked with us from a police perspective. We had to hire police officers, but the thing about security, you can actually get rid of it pretty quickly because the drug dealers don't want to mess with the police. All right, it's expensive, but if you hire licensed police officers. You can pretty much address it. What our challenge was is really the judicial system, is once our drug dealers were were busted and arrested, which we had 11 arrested about six months after we purchased it, they were out on bail within 24 hours. So they were right back at the property. So we just had to really be persistent and keep at it with them. And eventually they got the hint and they left. The problem is is because it it was a regional drug hub, this particular apartment community, I mean, millions of dollars in income. The drug activity there made a lot more money than the apartment <laughs> activity there as an operating yeah. apartment. Mm-hmm. So you would have replacement dealers come in. But at, you just have to stay on it. You just have to be persistent. And, and it took us about 18 months where we really felt like we had tackled it. But here we are four years later. We're still having to tackle it. I mean, we still have to be very careful who we let into the property. We have police officers that live there. It's not something you can let down your guard. It's something you really have to be persistent um, with. When um, at Madison Hills, after we cleaned it up, we were forced to sell it because our partners, we had equity partners in the deal, and we sold it to a, a buyer who immediately fired all the police officers. You know, closed our yeah, school program. Yeah, and within 18 months, the school was failing again, and the crime was back. So you have to stay vigilant when you go into these neighborhoods and buy these properties. 
how important is it to have people on the ground, in the cities, in the towns that you have these properties in? It's very much a community effort. So a lot of -of out-of-state buyers, which, you know, apartment communities now are commodities. They're traded around the world. And it's there's a lot of -of out-of-state money, foreign money coming in, buying these properties with just all they want is a cash flow. They're not very much interested in the communities that they invest in. I call them commodity landlords. I consider myself a community landlord where I really invest in the community and try to get the locals to invest in this community as well. So to me, it's not necessarily about the bottom line. It's about a triple bottom line. I make my model center around the tenant, and I think when you do that, you get a higher return than just focusing on your bottom line from a cash perspective. I wanted to mention that when people think about these 400, 500 units, um, for, for many who look at housing and real estate, they look at the um, the building of these buildings back in the 60s and 70s, like the Caprini Greens, the nightmarish uh, things that happen, because you have a lot of um, mindset. You have a lot of uh, impoverished mindsets that you have to work mm-hmm. through to get to having people see the vision, people uh, positive people who want to work there, who want to work with the tenants. You were able to work with tenants who were low income, who couldn't afford that 50 to $100 rent increase. I want you to talk to our audience about how important it is to have that uh, steady income. Uh, people who may have a steady income, whether they're working, whether they be um, retirees, it's important to have that cash flow. But many new people who go into real estate, they want to get rid of that and go for the fast cash. Meanwhile, those right. tenants will be gone in three to six months. Right. So as you'll read in the book, it was morally impossible for me to evict Mrs. Humphreys and Miss Mary and Jonathan and lots of other tenants that had lived in this crumbling environment, surviving the daily gunfire and the, the, the burglaries of the drug regional drug hub that was operating there. It, I think it, it was morally impossible for me to let them go. Um, so what we did is we froze everyone's rent for a year while we weeded through the property. We had a lot of bad actors living there, but we had to take our time and, and weed through it. So basically, you have to, like I said, you have to invest in the tenants. One of the things we know for certain is when you go into these blighted apartment communities, there's a complete lack of community trust. Your tenants don't trust the neighbors, maybe a few, Um, They don't trust management. They don't know, like you said, who's paying off the drug dealers. They don't know who the drug dealers are in some cases. So we know when we go in there, you have to first off address the safety. Once it's safe, then you can start building that community trust. And we do tenant association meetings. We do after-school programs. We do health fairs. We do Kaboom playground builds. We give our tenants opportunities to really get to know their neighbors. And it's actually very exciting to see. When you start giving the community capital back to the tenants, then they now make it their home. They take care of the property. Our trash is down 90% because our tenants are starting to really engage and take ownership of where they live. But it's very exciting now. We were interviewing one of our police officers a couple weeks ago, and he was telling us, and he actually lives at the property, that it's great on the weekends because they have these big community grills, big community cookouts. And see, that's what we want. We want our tenants to know each other. So when there's crime, they, you know, take ownership. They let us know. You know, they take care of the property. And to me, that's a valuable apartment community. 
you know, and the cash flow will come. You know, you'll I'll get profit from this eventually. But it's just so rewarding to see the tenants um, living great lives and, and enjoying where they live. One of the things that really touched my heart is the, the kids, the um, mm-hmm. programs that you uh, were talking about that could be of value because you mentioned that person who was, you know, raising a fourth generation in poverty. Environment is vital for everyone, right. and I think that we, as grown adults, um, I don't have kids yet, but we we tell our kids and we're very um, uh, protective of, you know, who, who they're around, what they're around. But when you're in an impoverished environment and you're seeing every day as a regular thing, uh, infestation, gunshots, et cetera, there is trauma, a lot of trauma. And I wanted you to talk about the partnering with the elementary schools and also the after-school programs and whatnot to help build kids' trust and esteem, which is so vitally important. So when we started our Star C is our nonprofit that does the after-school programs and all the community partnerships. It's called Star Dash C. When mm-hmm. we we can't start it until it's safe. So right as you read, we we got the community. It's safer, not perfect, but safer. Um, so basically, um, when we had our first day at the Star Sea program, those kids were just, I mean, so stressed out. They they were just whooped. That's the only word I can think of. They were they were you could tell they were depressed. They were stressed out. They wouldn't have eye contact with the adults. They weren't smiling. We're talking about five, six, and seven year olds. You know, there's something wrong here. And I'll just never forget going that very first day and looking at those children so defeated. And about six months later, those kids were starting to smile, they were cutting up, they knew each other, they had friends. Once we got rid of the drug dealers, they were out on their bicycles. You know, they were really starting to thrive. They were having hope. You know, we were doing this um, pretty intense interventional reading um, and social-emotional learning. And, you know, within a year, the children in our Starsea program are actually outperforming their peers on the federal competency test. It's called the Georgia Milestone um, they were actually outperforming their peers within a year, which we were surprised. Usually it takes two or three years. But to just see where we are today, where these kids are talking about their future and how they want to be a police officer because they love our police officer who lives there, or how they may want to be a teacher. They have a future. And it's just a complete turnaround from where we started. So, yeah, doing these after-school programs can really, really impact the next generation, and we see it. In your dealing in the beginnings, I was reading um, not only about the lady raising the fourth generation, but other people who came into renting and then started taking on either boyfriends and other people mm-hmm. living within the property that were not on the lease. And that, I hear, goes on an awful lot. Uh, mm-hmm. How were you able to... Get that under control because you you will have people who will try to make money off of that. Hey, let me take somebody else in. Let me, and you don't know who's on your property or how long they've right. been there. So we have strict laws and rules in in our property that you're not allowed to bring guests unless the guest has been underwritten for more. They can't stay for more than two weeks. So I call it, it's um, Sharon. She's one of the chapters, and she was an official phantom tenant. That's the name for them. And it's that person with good credit who will rent an apartment and turn around and, and basically turn the keys over to the drug dealer. 
and our um, drug dealer paid her $2,000 a month, and she was an 18-year-old with perfect credit because she didn't have any credit. Um, so the way we manage that now is we're really vigilant on just knowing who is living at the property, and again, with a more transparent model where people are out. You know, it used to be everyone was in their apartment. Now everyone's outside, you know, with the grills and their kids are on the playground. So we have a lot more transparency on who's living there, number one. But also we know when we see those tenants show up that have perfect credit or have, you know, no credit or they don't have any bad credit yet, very, very hesitant with them. Um, so we're very careful how we screen our tenants to avoid the phantom tenants. I think within a year after we purchased it, as we were going through the tenant profile, we were rejecting eight out of ten tenants that applied simply because we suspected them of being a phantom tenant or of being a drug dealer who really didn't have good credit or, or any credit because we didn't want to bring it back. And all you need all you need is one or two people and it comes back. So you just have to be mm -hmm. very careful in how you underwrite. I wanted to talk about not only the safety of the property. You mentioned that you were able to get some of the tenants to actually do um, a great job and, and whatnot. But what about uh, the local police? Because when you're talking about a property that big, you know, <laughs> uh, and you're talking about thousands of people, that's an awful lot. You do have to have your local jurisdiction. You do have to have state laws. But many times when people buy these properties who are out of town and say they take over um, the great work that you've done, and you can get a reverse um, of things falling apart. Don't you think at the state and local as well as the uh, national level, there should be something in place so when you're building something up like this, there is responsibility for whoever comes in next that they can't run the property down? It's very hard to um, legislate that. So I think what we're doing with our properties is we're looking at putting them in a nonprofit that's mission-based that will follow the model. So it can be, you know, it go on intergenerationally. Um, some of my properties I've owned for over 20 years, and the nonprofit and foundational world is just now starting to embrace housing as an investment. When we were raising the money for Summerdale, I had to raise $10 million. It was very, very difficult because the foundation world just didn't invest in housing. It was number 12 on their list. Right. Since then, especially with COVID, that's greatly improved. And actually, yesterday I had lunch with a very large foundation in Atlanta, and they are really looking at major, making a major investment in housing for the first time ever. But I think a lot of our issues around education and healthcare start with housing, and people are realizing the downstream in investment of having safe, healthy housing you have fewer health care issues. You have fewer people in the emergency room, a lower incidence of asthma. Um, the schools will thrive. You know, the children typically have a better academic performance. So if you can make that investment in housing, you're really making a downstream investment in health care and education as well. And I wanted you perfectly to, to bring that out because the health care issues uh, that we see, it um, – all that stress, all the adrenaline, all the, you know, uh, the blighted, um, I, I guess, cofactors that people don't understand. Uh, it makes your health issues worse if you already have them. And then it brings out health issues in children because of the living conditions um, that you have right. to address. Um, in terms of 
bringing your buildings up because I was reading about ADA compliance and other things that you had to deal with that were even on the books when these buildings were built. So that, you know, was an extreme cost, making places energy efficient. That's another thing that's really popular right now uh, in building buildings. They don't build these apartments quite as big these days. Uh, right. You might get, you know, 200, 300 uh, units, but you're not going to get anything as big as what was built back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, what are your next uh, ventures? What are you looking at in terms of going forward? So one of the reasons I wrote the book was to give transparency to anyone interested um, on the challenges of addressing blighted apartment communities. Um, our system is broken at the federal level, yes. at the local level. The system's broken. Let me give you an example. And the consequences are this housing crisis, the homelessness, the high stress, the overwhelmed emergency rooms, the failing elementary school. That is a consequence of the system. Uh-huh. You're right. So um, the local fire marshals, for example, are the strongest voice in affordable housing that no one talks about. The local fire marshals, the codes... 60% of housing occupied by low-income people was built before 1993. 60%. Mm -hmm. All right. So this problem is going to get worse. Housing's a crop. It's going to continue to age. Um, a lot of it was built with antiquated codes, and the codes today don't address it. You know, so it's vague. So when I go in to try to renovate that blighted apartment community, my fire marshal, they didn't fire, but follow the code. They just did whatever they wanted. They could mandate wow. me to put fire sprinklers and, and very expensive upgrades that that basically made it no longer affordable. And as I documented mm -hmm. in the book, dealing with the city of Atlanta added $1.8 million to the cost, and it's $166 a month in rent that I had to increase just to pay for dealing with the permitting mis dysfunction. Every mm -hmm. time you raise rents, $100, homelessness goes up 15%. That's That's been studied. So here I am having to raise my rents $166, which doesn't sound like a lot of money, but we know a lot of our tenants couldn't afford that and they would become homeless. So now you have a problem, like you see in major cities around the country, with this homeless issue simply because there's too much control from a regulatory perspective. So that's one of the things we're working on, and I've had a lot of people approach me about how do you fix the regulatory system? And there are some very simple fixes out there. So, you know, to answer your question, the system's broken, and we've got to address this if we're going to really address the downstream effects of blighted housing. Well, before you can get to blighted housing, you just mentioned homelessness. We've got a mm -hmm. lot of people who become homeless, and the middle class has dwindled really in the last 15 years. Um, mm -hmm. you've got people living in their cars. We do mm -hmm. have blighted buildings. We do have uh, places that actually could be used as shelters temporarily or permanently if some of these mm -hmm. blighted areas were addressed. Has that been something that you have been thinking about? Because I, when I think of homelessness, I think, wow, there are a lot of blighted buildings. I wonder what it would take to make that a shelter or even if it was something temporary until, you know, we could get people off the streets. So I did research. Roughly 2,700 people die every year because of fires, 2,700 people. 
of which 15% mm-hmm. are in apartment communities. So roughly 400 people a year die in apartment community fires, all right? There are 600 and something thousand people every night that's, that are homeless. And they lose an average of 20 years of life when you're homeless. So you're talking about 120,000 people pretty much die early from homelessness versus 2,700 due to fires. Again, let's get back into the fire marshal conversation. Because those mm-hmm. older blighted structures you're talking about, there's no mm-hmm. way in a lot of cities you can renovate them and maintain affordability because of the code, the regulatory code issues. So this is something that we need to address on a national scale. I agree. I agree. Mm-hmm. I am I am on the bandwagon for uh, affordable housing and nice homes. I wanted to ask, though, there are people who are disabled. And I remember you said that you had to um, do a lot of ADA code renovations to bring it up to the standard of the ADA. Um, And that can add with cost. But, you know, a lot of housing for people with various disabilities actually should be mainstreamed into regular housing. I wanted you to talk about the cost to that. I I work in the... um, uh, disability rights community, and many times some of the older structures you can't really get into because of stairs, etc. What was the added cost to bring these uh, apartments up to code so you could rent them out to anyone with any type of physical uh, challenge? You know, it's interesting. That's also documented in the book, and I'm trying to. It was like four, an extra four hundred thousand to upgrade. I want to say four units. Uh-huh. Um, and then the people we had living at the property that were handicapped didn't want to move there because they just didn't like them. I look at mm-hmm. handicapped and housing is every handicap is so unique that their housing need is so unique. And That's right. I would like to, yeah, I would like to see the regulatory really work on more on a one-on-one with the landlord and let the landlord and the tenant work it out, or let the t- tenant be able to get loans, or the landlord to be able to get loans to make that unit unique for that tenant. Um, One of the long-term tenants that we had at the property, her nephew was a quadriplegic. He had been in the Navy, had an accident, quadriplegic. And the the, the UFAS requirement we had to follow wouldn't have helped him. You know, Mm -hmm. we really needed to do different upgrades. But per the code, I had to do upgrades that didn't apply to him. So we ended up doing additional upgrades for his unique situation. That's great, though, because well, everybody's situation is going to be different. Right, right. And so this one size, trying to do this one size fits all doesn't necessarily, I think, work most of the time. It works some of the time, but I don't think that's a real good policy. And I think it, we're spending lots, millions and millions of dollars on something that doesn't, it, it doesn't really address the issue. In legislature, I'm on a um, committee, a coalition that talks about affordable housing and low-income housing. And it seems like at this point in stage with, um, you know, not only COVID, but uh, people saying, uh, legislators that are saying that they're on board for this, there should be more action. What do you think is going to be needed to get stuff taken care of at a legislative uh, angle? to help 
with landlord tenant and other things going on across the country. So we're not seeing a skyrocket of homelessness, et cetera. And as you mentioned in, in uh, Atlanta, the bureaucracy of the court systems taking so long to address a lot of different issues. To me, we're talking about the structural environment here. Okay, housing mm-hmm. is a structural right. environment. Again, it's a crop. It has a shelf life. So things that were built in the 70s are now 50 years old. That's and they're right. built at a different code. But they still house the vast majority of people living in poverty. And I mm-hmm. think that we have to address the permitting and the regulatory environment. We need to have honest conversations about it and understand the impact that's having on housing. And, you know, I speak all over the country now, and I've spoken in cities where there is no affordable housing anymore, simply because they could not get through the permitting or in the code mm-hmm. compliance in a way that promoted affordability. And consequently, those are the cities that are really having a homeless issue. So, you know, we have to address this. And I feel like like when you go to Sacramento and you're in California, it's it's in a spin cycle. You know, no one wants to unwind it. No one knows how mm-hmm. to unwind it. People are afraid, you know, if they make the wrong decision that someone's going to die, which is terrible, of course, but it's already happening in the form of homelessness. Right. So we have to have an honest conversation, again, which is one of the reasons I put all those metrics and statistics in the book and showed it in a real-life situation about how important this is. Um, just one more thing. Our Atlanta mayor is very mm-hmm. aware of this book and our work, and he now cites that. He goes, we have to address this because it's causing a lot of our families to become homeless. Most definitely. That's why I wanted to have you here to talk about these issues because I, it's close to my heart, and I, I see, you know, situations where people were living in their homes and doing pretty well, and all of a sudden, you know, you've got another issue where you've got a whole family that can't afford to mm-hmm. be not necessarily in a home, but an apartment because of the skyrocketing rents. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the takeovers of these apartment complexes where the rent's so sky high with the next um, person that acquires it. It's like, oh, my heavens. Um, mm-hmm. But when you're in a housing crisis, what do you think of these sky high rents now? I mean, it's insane. Unbelievable. Oh, we we have, you know, we host a monthly breakfast through Star City that's open to the public. We had a, a basically an apartment community show up one at one of our breakfasts. It was like 18 people, and their landlord had just raised the rents like $500 a month. And as and those 18 people, they were they were great neighbors and friends, and they had lived together for years at this apartment community, and they were asking for our help. You know, we we don't want to basically disrupt this this apartment community, but we we all have to move. You know, we, we see it every day. We get calls every day. We step, we start to had a, a eviction relief fund. And it's just amazing mm-hmm. to me that landlords are raising rents five, six, six, seven hundred dollars a month. Oh. Oh, that's very yeah. true. That, and sometimes yeah. they don't give you a 30 or 60 day notice. They just right. all of a sudden say, oh, okay, it's a, it, um, I, I had somebody I was speaking to, they were, it was, it's like the 25th of February, and they're just like, oh, well, the, I have to pay an extra $700 next month. I said, well, when did you find that out? Today. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. But I said, well, are you staying? They said, no, I have to put in my 60-day. I said, wait a minute. 60 days, right. you've got to give them 60 days, but yet they just today raised your rent $700 extra? 
wow, there's got to be something nationally where if you've got to, you know, give a 60-day notice to leave, shouldn't you be given, uh, you know, ample time to know that in a couple months you're going to be paying extra? That makes no sense. Well, and there's also a growing collection crisis that a lot of landlords aren't talking about, especially in the, the lower income apartment communities. We're seeing apartment communities around us where the landlords are, are telling us they're collecting 50 cents on the dollar, meaning half the tenants in their 400-unit apartment community, only half are paying rent. The other half are under eviction. And, well, you raised your rent $600 or $500 last year. What do you expect? You know, the, the tenants can't afford it, and they can't find any other place to go, so they're stuck. Um, and you're you going to see some of those properties yeah. go into foreclosure. It's interesting. I, um, my, my mom's in, in real estate. I had heard about a property where I think 200 of the 85 units, um, uh, well, there were 200 uh, people who were on fixed income, and um, they were building other units. But the people they had there, I'd say uh, over half of them had fixed income. They had steady income. Mm-hmm. They got rid of those people. Mm-hmm. Brought other people in. Within a year and a half, the place looked a wreck. Most people yeah. couldn't pay rent. And then you had bonfires and everything else going on on the property because they just had to, to do a $99 move-in special, which is crazy. Right. Um, right. And it was a beautiful property. That That's the thing. It was in a, a you know, near residential area. The people who are in the um, housing complex were, were voting to have the place raised. They said within a two-year period, this place went to a desi- from a desirable place to live, apartment complex, to now an eyesore. Well, don't, the tear it down. Mm-hmm. don't tear it down. Um, to rebuild in Atlanta using a tax credit deal, which is what you almost have to do today, get federal tax credits, is roughly 330000 right. a unit. Mm-hmm. To renovate that property is about 30 cents on the dollar. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of, when people see these blighted apartment communities, they immediately want to tear them down, and, and that's a mistake. We were able to renovate Summerdale, Springview Summerdale, for about, I think we have like 30000 a unit, which is nothing. We did it in 2018 to 2020. Um, but it brought up another over 100 affordable housing units. You know, our basis is really low, so we can keep our rents affordable for families making about twenty-five to 40000 a year. That was our goal. Um, and I tell people it's this is hard work. Um, it's very rewarding work. It can be dangerous work. you got to be careful. You have to have the licensed police officers with you. I said, mm-hmm. but you, in the end, if you, you're persistent, you can really turn around communities and offer affordability, usually within two to three years. So I tell people, don't tear them down. At least give them a chance to see if someone would come come in and renovate them. Because that you can, you know, you can you can spend a hundred million to build a new three hundred and thirty unit apartment community, or you can renovate one for less, much less than half that, and, and invest that money in other affordable housing. Amen. The book is Blighted, Margie Stagmeyer. Thanks so much for being with me. Is there anything um, that you want us? Are you going to be speaking? Um, are you doing workshops? Let us know. Um, oh, I'm looking for places to speak. Um, I'm thinking about doing a uh, quarterly Zoom call and just talking about um, TriStar University and how communities can basically turn around these apartment communities. Um, we've done that in the past. 
and we're working on it now. The book just came out in December, and uh, so we're, we're laying the groundwork to have a bigger national dialogue. And, and please buy the book. Um, it hit number one on Amazon. Um, it's hit it twice now for my category, so it's very exciting for me to see it embraced by the community. Yes, it's an awesome book, and it gives a lot of great resources, case studies, you know, the people you said that you interviewed. You even tell us about the different steps you made with different agencies and not-for-profits in the community, not only to help the um, residents that live there, the the uh, people on the lease, but their children, and the community at large. So it gives a, a good breakdown of how you were able to have some successes before you got to Keisha Lance Bottoms and many other people, because it takes a village. It really does uh, a solid village of people to build something like this, especially in as quick a time as you did the three, three and a half years. Well, thank you so much, Sabrina Marie, for the interview. And um, if I can ever help you out in any way or come speak with you, please feel free to, to reach out to me. Thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Love the book. You've been listening to Building Abundant Success with Sabrina Marie. Copyright March 25th, 2023.